Good morning. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here on the leadership team, and I head up the teaching team. It's great to see everybody here this morning. Great to hear, to have everybody who's listening on podcast um, from all over out there. And um, we're going to take a minute here and intentionally calm ourselves. I loved what Lucian said about coming with a, a spirit of expectation today coming with a, an anticipation for what we are going to receive. And so to help us in that, to help us create the space for that this morning, I'm going to read a poem by one of my favorite poets uh, from hundreds of years ago, George Herbert. Um, I'm going to read this and I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask you just to listen. And I'm going to ask you to welcome that spirit of anticipation for what the Lord is going to share with us today. This is a poem called The Elixir. Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see and what I do in anything to do it as for thee not rudely as a beast to run into an action but still to make thee prepossessed and give it his perfection a man that looks on glass oh it may stay his eye or if he pleaseth through it past, and then the heavens espy. All may of thee partake, nothing can be so mean, which with this tincture for thy sake will not grow bright and clean. A servant with this clause makes drudgery divine, who sweeps a room as for thy, for thy laws, makes that and the action fine. This is the famous stone that turneth all to gold. For that which God doth touch and own cannot for less be told. Jesus, we want to see you today. We want to hear your voice. We want to be healed. We want to be set free. We want to be comforted. Give us the anticipation for what you are going to say. And whether that be a word of comfort or of rebuke, whether that be something that challenges us, let us be open to receive it and walk in it by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week wraps up our six-week reflection on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. If you're just joining us, if this is your first time, um, there's a lot of great resources that we've gone through, if this interests you at all. For the previous five weeks, we've included in the worship guide and in in the lesson guide 
all kinds of resources and references to that. And I have to tell you, I went into this study with one set of expectations and a, a feeling about it, and now I stand six weeks later with a very different set of emotions and a very different outcome than I had anticipated. And in case you're wondering why we spent so much time studying something that happened 500 years ago, believe me, today we'll, we'll bring it together here. One of, the, one of the texts that I read in preparation for this in one of the countless articles is a book called What the Reformation Got Wrong. And I have to tell you, it opened my eyes to a lot that I had not previously considered. And this is a complex history we're dealing with here. This is not easy stuff. Look, it's, it's super easy to treat it on a superficial. Yay, Reformation over here. Boo, Reformation over here. Right? We can do that. That's easy enough. That's what most people are engaged in. But the truth about it, and what I want to challenge us deeply to think about today, is that the truth is much more complex. There is a lot to be grieved about the Reformation, as much as there is to be celebrated. First of all, let me say, the Reformation won. It won. The the gross in, injustices and a lot and most of the theology that was found so offensive in the Catholic Church at the time has been adjusted. It's been addressed. It's been changed, not only through the Reformation, but through the Counter-Reformation in the Catholic Church. Most of what the Reformers were protesting against at that time has been done away with, with that. And that is something to be celebrated, recognized, and treated with great joy. At the same time, I can't help but think somehow the cure has now become our disease. There is a rampant, critical spirit shattering unity. There is hostility and violence between followers of Jesus everywhere. And where we were once under the control and crushed down with the weight of rules and laws, now there is a lawlessness that seeps through every aspect of our followership of Jesus. And all of that is antithetical to the gospel of Christ. It is antithetical to the very ways we are to evangelize and to witness. It permeates every aspect of our modern ethos and practice, whether it is in the soft selfishness of the consumer mentality that church shops and makes church optional, or whether it is in the violent vitriol of the culture wars and seeks to judge and cut apart and define further and further. Most of the reformers reached the end of their life with very mixed feelings about what they had done. If you read the histories of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all the people that were involved in it, they got to the end and they looked out upon the landscape and wondered if what they had started was ultimately worth it. 
I dare say that if they could come and look at the church, the evangelical Protestant church of 2017 right now, they would shudder and be hard-pressed not to want to repent of what they started and go back and unwrite every word and unpreach every sermon. We have been shattered into thousands of sects and denominations and expressions. And most of our energy is consumed fighting still among ourselves. But we cannot go back. We can't unwrite history. We cannot, as a church, as a people, undo what has been done. So we have to find a way forward. And so to do that, I am going to do something audacious today, something far beyond my pay grade or ability. And I am going to suggest that we add a sixth sola to the five of the Reformation. If you've been here and you studied, you know that we have studied about being faith alone, grace alone, for Christ alone, to God's glory alone with that. These instrumental aspects of viewing faith. I would add this. Sola et semper ecclesia. Only and always the church. Now hear me when I say this. I'm not saying, I'm not advocating any kind of return to the Catholic church or anything like that. That is not what I'm saying. That, that bridge has been crossed. That's not what's going to happen. At the same time, for us to continue in this further dividing and further refining down to the smallest, most narrow definitions of what it means to be a Christian by our standards is pure madness. Pure madness. So we have to find a way forward that will direct us towards a more tangible expression of church unity of what it means to be a Christian than we now have. And we have to reject the strident cutting and violence against each other which has permeated our history for the last 500 years. And I confess, it is going to take some work. It is going to take a whole new imagination about what it means to be a Christian and not defining ourselves in such narrow categories. It is going to take a whole other level of humility <clears throat> to receive from other people, but also courage to share with other people in a way that is not divisive or accusatory or divisive. And I think we can only do that when we understand and commit ourselves to this idea that it's not going to happen any other way than through the church. The church is the thing that God has established to demonstrate who God is. There's just no plan B. 
We talk about this a lot here at Grace. There's simply no plan B than the church, other than the church. The church is it. And when I say that, I say that not as someone who is naive, not as someone who has romantic notions about the church. I've been, my wife and I, Jane, we've been kicked out of one mission organization, fired from a church. We have endured and encountered the worst in some ways that the church has to offer in terms of spiritual abuse, bad theology, abusive practices. I don't, I don't have any romantic notions left. Flannery O'Connor once said, once said, she said, we're not called so much to suffer for the church as we are called to suffer from the church. In some ways, she's true. She's right. Listen, if you think that you're going to be part of not just this church, but any church, and it not cause you to suffer, to sacrifice, to not get your way, you are going to be continually disappointed. And in some ways, when we let our imagination go down that way, just like we would with any relationship that is deep and meaningful, we realize that anything worth time, anything of value, cost us. And here we are talking about something that is not only in divinely inspired, it is transcendent. This church is something that is beyond just a human meeting place. It's beyond a social organization or a club or a class. This is a cosmic reality that we share in as we meet. That is intended not just as some kind of harbor in a storm, but as a catalytic force to change the very course of the universe. Let that sink in for a minute this morning. You're not here to hear a good sermon, sing a few songs, give a little money, see a few friends. We are gathered here to change the course of the cosmos. To be a sign and an expression of the kingdom that broke back into creation through the Lord Jesus Christ. As His followers, we are here to do His bidding and His bidding alone. Now, I doubt many of you thought about that as you were getting dressed this morning. But it doesn't change the reality. And so if this answer, if we add to the firm foundation that the, ref, the reformers did discern and did reestablish, reorder, which was quite necessary. Faith and grace, glory to God, the centrality of Jesus, the, the primacy of Scripture. Those things are only really experienced in the context of the church, of us being together. Another one of the slogans that they had, and I think the reason why it, it wasn't included in the five solas at that time, is because that was just assumed. In that day and age, the day and age of the reformers, the, the idea that some person could experience that followership of Jesus outside of the church didn't even enter their thoughts. It wasn't even part of their imagination. The reason they didn't address it is because nobody thunk it. 
It just wasn't part of their thinking. It, it would have been an impossible thought. It would have been like, well, yeah, let's follow that fish that crawls on land. The idea that you would be a follower of Jesus, that you would be a Christian and not be part of the church, wasn't even a possibility. Now it is the norm. In our society, in our day and age right now, it is the norm that church is optional, secondary. To be a Christian in our day and age, all you do is say a prayer. Get a warm, fuzzy feeling. Buy a couple Dayspring mugs with some inspirational verses on them. Slap a fish sticker on the back of your car. You're a Christian? You don't need the church. And yet, how can we have Jesus without his body? Us. And so we need to, in this day and age, do what they did say. They did have a saying during this time. I don't know, you're going to get a lot of Latin today. But they had a saying that was ecclesia semper reformanda est. The church always reforming. You see, the reformers never intended for that reformation to take place and that be it, done, sealed, signed, over. They were starting a process. They understood this was something that needed to be continually done. And yet 500 years later, we look back and see that that process just somehow stopped in many ways. And now we're stuck in so many of the things that society has, around us has now adjusted to. We need to understand that the biggest barrier to the new and needed reformation is the idea that we got it all figured out in the last one. And that the strongest opponents of the new reformation are the defenders of the last one. We have to commit ourselves to the church and its continuing reformation. And Peter gives us some incredible encouragement and sober warnings on how to start. This passage that we're going to study this week in our learning guide that we're going to take and meditate on, we've added a new portion to the, to the worship guide, to the learning guide this week where each day we're going to take one verse out of this, and each day we're going to sit and emphasize different words in that same verse. So as you print it off or whether you do it online, look at the Reformation guide, or the lesson guide, and every day starting Monday, you'll see the verse. It'll have an emphasis Tuesday, the same verse with a different emphasis to really let this sink into our hearts. Peter's writing to this church. He's writing to the church. And <coughs> we were talking about it at the teaching team. You know, it's funny. In Acts 2, it's, it's the honeymoon of the church, right? I mean, what else could cause people to just sell all they've owned and throw it into one pot and just take care of everybody else? I mean, that's honeymoon talk, right? That's, I'm never going to be disturbed by his stinky socks on the floor, <laughs> I'll never get mad at her for not scooting the seat back in the cars so I don't jam my knees up against the <laughs> steering column every time I get in. I'll never get mad at that. <laughs> I 
But Acts 2 is this honeymoon time. Man, everybody's together. And then by the time we get to 1 Peter, baby, the honeymoon's over. The honeymoon is over. And the church is probably asking itself, what in the world have I got myself into? I can, I, I've been joined with these Gentiles and these poor people and these slaves and these rich people and these Romans and they like that garlic stuff and they do that weird dance stuff and these people over here, I don't know what they do. And Peter writes them this letter. So let's put ourselves in that place. Starting 1 Peter 4, 1. So since Christ suffered in the flesh, you also arm yourselves with the same attitude. Because the one who has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin, and that he spends the rest of his time on earth concerned about the will of God, and not human desires. That I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to put that in the next every marriage ceremony I do from now on. Because man, is that the definition of commitment? When we sign up, we put one set aside, and we take on a whole other set of priorities. He goes on, for the time has passed that his past was sufficient for you to do what all the non-Christians desire. You lived in debauchery, evil desires, drunkenness, carousing, drinking bouts, and wanton idolatries. So they are astonished when you do not rush with them into the same flood of wickedness, and they vilify you. They face a reckoning before Jesus Christ who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Now it was for this very purpose that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, so that they, though they were judged by in the flesh by human standards, may live spiritually by God's standards. For the culmination of all things is near. So be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. Above all, keep your love for one another fervent, because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. Whoever serves, do so with the strength that God supplies. So then in everything, God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. But he goes on. Dear friends, do not be astonished that a trial by fire is occurring among you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice to the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ so that when His glory is revealed, you is revealed in you. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory, who is the Spirit of God, rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or a criminal or as a troublemaker. But if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But glor glorify God that you bear such a name. For it is time for judgment to begin 
starting with the house of God. And I want to stop just there for a minute. I want you to listen to this and let it sit, let it sit in. He says, murderer, thief, criminal, and troublemaker. Could also be translated gossip. One who brings division. In the same category as murder is someone who brings division in the church. Someone who gossips, slanders, causes trouble. And if it starts with us, what will be the fate of those who are disobedient to the gospel of God? And if the righteous are barely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? So then, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator as they do good. This is a sober-minded reminder that when that honeymoon is over, and when it literally causes suffering to serve, don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't quit. As a matter of fact, don't even perceive it as something unusual. It's just what happens. And in a way, we see this all the time. It happens in marriages. It happens in families. It happens in schools. It happens everywhere. Once you get past out of that, that naive period, that romantic period, you realize relationships take work. And these relationships here within the church will probably take more work than any others. Because the church is formed around someone other than ourselves. Which sets the church apart from other groups, organizations, clubs, dinner clubs, play dates. Is that we, we choose to be together for the sake of Jesus. Not because we like the person sitting next to us, necessarily. Now, I like everybody in here as much as I know you. But that's not why I'm here. That's not the reason. I'm here because I want to be obedient to Jesus and because I've, I've responded to his work of grace in my heart by faith. And I'm coming to understand more and more that there is simply no alternative to this thing called the church. As much as I would like there to be, as much as I've walked away from it in the past, as much as I've not participated in the past. Listen, my track record on this is not good. But we are called together for a purpose, to be witness to the kingdom of God, to be reconcilers, ambassadors of Christ, to go out and to then to be together in such a way that the very supernatural warp and woof of the universe is changed, is altered for the glory of God. And so we have to have a bond, we have to have a reason beyond, I just like the worship, or it's convenient. There has to be something deeper. And that starts with recognizing that there is no alternative to the church. As I said earlier, the prevalent attitude in our society is that the church is secondary, at best, <clears throat> to what we believe about Jesus. That somehow we can totally separate what we think and how we act. But we have to recognize, and this is to paraphrase Albert Einstein, that that idea that we can exist as individuals apart from the church 
is an optical illusion of perception. It's simply not reality. There is no alternative to the church. We exist together or we do not exist at all as followers of Jesus. The story of the Bible is a story of the people of God. First is identified in Israel and then is the church. If we are not active and involved in the church, we are not active and involved in the story of what God is doing, period. We are all being formed by something. Where we are identifying and putting our faith, we are all doing that in something. So the question becomes what? And the answer is the church. The church is to be the primary place where our imagination, practices, relationships, and apprenticeship to Jesus is formed. And if you don't, if, if I'm not convincing you on this, just take for a minute and do this maybe later on this week too. And just imagine the world without the church. Let's just say, hey, you know what? It's just too much work. It's too much money. I don't like doing it. It's too inconvenient. I got other things to do. We've got 2,000 years of Christian writing books. There's probably enough podcasts that we couldn't listen to them all for 1,000 years. Let's just quit. Let's just stop and imagine what the world would be like. Imagine what your life would look like then. The church played no role because functionally we can make that happen. Each of us as individuals, functionally, we can make the church cease to exist. We can separate ourselves where it has no role, no influence, and exist. Imagine what your life would be like without that. We cannot truly live as apprentices of Christ outside of the church. But here's the rub, right? And this is what Peter's talking about. It's hard work, y'all. It is hard work. It's not always rosy. It stinks a lot of the time with that. And another predominant character of our culture is the love of the bargain. My gosh, we are 30 minutes from low prices equals better life. Think about that for a minute. Literally, think about the philosophy and the theology behind Walmart's smiley face slogan. That is the predominant philosophy of our culture. We all want the biggest ROI, the most return with the least investment. But when we apply that thinking, that kind of thinking to the church, we often judge it as a bad investment. Giving ourselves to the work of the church, entering into the suffering of others, investing in relationships with people that we would never otherwise choose to invest in or even spend time with is daunting, exhausting, and culture tells us you're a sucker for doing it. That's literally what our culture says, is you're stupid for being here. If you're not getting more out of it than what you're putting into it. Couple this with the idea, the predominant idea that we have in our culture, that if God is in it, it's going to be easy. And believe me, that one's out there. Is that if God's doing it, it's going to work out. It's going to be easy. It's going to be nice. It's going to be clean. It's going to be pretty. 
You put those two together, it's a wonder why anybody goes to church at all. Unless you are in that season where you get more than you give. And we all have those seasons. We all have those seasons where we go through grief or struggle, crisis, and we get more from the church than we give. But it's so easy when we're not in that season to think, what's the point? What's the purpose? Listen, just because it's difficult and demanding doesn't mean that we are doing it wrong. In fact, I think it might be the affirmation that we are on the right track. I think that's what Peter is saying. He literally says, don't be surprised that this fiery trial has come upon you. Why should we not be surprised? Because if we are going to live as followers of Christ, if we are going to commit ourselves to a community that defies the principles and the practices and the marketing of the world, it's not going to go smooth. And when we couple that with the idea that each of us and all of us come in as broken vessels, each of us comes in corrupted by sin and selfishness. What, we think that's just going to go away when we walk into church? You think that's somehow just going to miraculously quit because you sang a few worship songs? I mean, you really think that that's just going to stop because you heard a few sermons. This is a lifelong endeavor of submitting ourselves and developing the practices and habits that transform that brokenness into something beautiful. And it is beautiful. We can never lose sight of the beauty of it. We can never lose sight of the value of it. But it is going to take some work. Work not that saves us. We've already been saved. Listen, this is, not, this is not trying to make God happy. Let me make sure you hear that. I'm not talking about work so you can make God happy. God's already happy. This is work in response to what God has already done for us and is doing in us. And that's the last thing here. If we're going to do this, we have to accept that it's not going to be done in our own strength. This is, not, this is not a locker room talk. God, that phrase has been screwed up lately. Um, this is not that pregame speech. This is not that pump up, rah, rah, let's go get them church, yay, us, go team. That's not what I'm doing here. We have to realize that as we do this, it is only going to be done, if it is going to be done, in the power of the Holy Spirit. That we are going to have to come to the ends of ourselves so that we can open space for God to do those things. That we are going to have to admit and confess and repent and come to the end of our own strength before we can do it in God's strength. That's, and again, in Peter's admonition here in this text, it is so clear to see it's not going to be done with our strategies with our degrees with our finances it's going to be done in God's strength now will he use those things yeah he will but probably in some ways we didn't anticipate and it's going to be the weakest among us who end up being the leaders it's going to be the things that the world despises that become our glory it's going to be the things that we wouldn't choose otherwise to be involved in. 
to become a way of salvation, a means of grace in us. And that is accomplished only by the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot accomplish this reformation of the church on our own, in our own strength, in our own ways. Now, if I haven't convinced you with this argument, I want to briefly touch on four things. There's a fascinating article in The Plow, which is an Anabaptist publication by a Catholic scholar, Ross Douthat. He says this, he gives four arguments for community in our day and age. And I think these reflect a lot of kind of the practical outworkings of this. He says, we need community, one, because Christianity is no longer the transcendent organizing principle behind society. If you think we're a Christian nation living in a Christian world at a Christian time, that ship sailed a long time ago. The organizing principle of Western society is no longer based in Christianity or even tolerates Christianity very well. And I'm not saying this in any kind of culture war ways. I'm just saying what many of us grew up just accepting as true is no longer accepted as true. The second thing is this, is that our institutions are going away. We have to realize that this church and other churches and seminaries and Christian universities have all existed in a large degree because society was friendly to them. The culture accepted them, saw them as valuable. Maybe not agreed with them, but at least saw there was value in them. Those are going, that's going to quit. That's going to stop. Society and culture's affirmation of institutions that identify themselves as Christian is at its end. It's already happened in most of the world. It's going to happen here. And so we're going to have to find a way of forming ourselves and being in a community that doesn't depend on institutions as we now know them. Those of us who have traveled to different countries, it's a little bit easier to imagine what it means to be a church without a building, without a paid staff, without schools and universities. But for those of us who are couched in this culture, that can be terrifying. But it's no less true. It's coming. It's going to happen. The third thing is, in this culture, we're finally coming to realize that there is much more that unites us than divides us. As we look at society turning away from Christian, as a ba- Christianity as a basis, institutions losing their preferential status, we have to understand that whereas before it was easy to demonize a Catholic, an Orthodox, Pentecostal, whatever, pick your poison, Church of Christ, whoever, we're finally going to see that there is way more that unites us then divides us. And while we will always have theological differences, while there will always be even significant disagreements on specific issues, we'll begin to see that in the overall context, those things are not disqualifying for fellowship. That there is going to be much more that unites us than divides us. And finally, and this is the most sobering of his arguments that I could see, is that the church exists in a culture where there is the fundamental reality of our culture is hyper-individualism. The fundamental 
mark of our culture is hyper-individualism. There is this rise of extraordinary individualism in our culture. And if there's anything that threatens to destroy us, it is that. But at the same time, if there is anything that will give power to our witness, is that we reject it and live as a community. You want to talk about people seeing Jesus as we move forward into this 21st century. The primary place and the primary way they are going to experience that is in a community that rejects the hyper-individualism, the consumeristic culture. Like I said, the soft selfishness of consumerism or the violent extremism of separatism and starts to live and love as a community sacrificially, transcendently. That is going to be our witness that wins the world. That is going to be our gospel. That is going to be our evangelism. When we center in that community around Jesus Christ, as he commanded with, he, with him as the head, that's where it's going to happen. If we are going to live with sola et semper ecclesia as our guiding commitment, with the knowledge that the church must always be reforming, it is going to have to start with us. It's going to have to start with me. It's almost always easier to see the flaws in others, what's wrong with other institutions or groups, than it is to deal with our own flaws, failures. But before any meaningful reformation can begin in the church as a whole, it has to start with each of us, and it has to start with us as a collective. These two are tied together. As we come to take this table today, I'm going to lead us in a prayer from the second century. And Lucian, if you and the team could come on up. And I'm going to have us stand up and give voice to this prayer. I don't know. Look, I don't know if I've convinced you. I don't know if what I've said makes sense to you. But I am, I am going to ask you to consider it. I'm going to ask you to study it. I'm going to ask you to reflect on it. I'm going to ask you to go deep into it with your grace groups this week and in your personal studies. And if you want to talk to me, come talk to me. But I want you to at least consider it. And I want you to give voice to this prayer as a way of at least making space for the possibility. So if you would stand with me before we take communion <clears throat> and read this with me. We give you thanks, O oh Father, for the life and knowledge which you have made known to us through your Son, Jesus. Yours is the glory forever and ever. As the grain once scattered in the field and the grapes once dispersed on the hillside are now united on this table in bread and wine, so, Lord, May your whole church soon be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom.
For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. We approach this table as symbol of what Jesus has died for and what he is gathering. Gathering us. Gathering us. Making us one. So come with a willingness and anticipation to be made one in Christ. Thank you for being here this morning.